Chaston's life and mine had become so fully intertwined that I was completely unprepared for the jolt of a winter afternoon text, which led to seven minutes in which I doubted I'd see him again. Hi, this is Julie Bashkin, the executive producer of Personal Disclosures, a storytelling podcast born at the Second City Training Center in Chicago. This is a special episode called What's Love Got to Do With It? This episode is entirely devoted to guest stars, each with an LGBT background. Our first guest is none other than Pete Buttigieg, also known as Mayor Pete. Pete is currently mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and is running for U.S. president. If he wins, he will be the youngest and the first gay president of the United States. Pete happens to be a former colleague of mine, and in this episode, we will not focus on his resume or his political opinions and agenda, but instead, we will focus on a very personal story. This is an excerpt from Pete's New York Times bestselling memoir, Shortest Way Home. The idea of telling LGBTQ personal stories were important to this podcast from the very beginning, and we cover these topics with a regular cast. So if you like what you hear in this episode, go back and check out our others, starting with Bad Romance. You will hear a more comedic angle and get to know our cast. In the meantime, also check out our website, personaldisclosures.com, where we give everyone an ability to tell their own life story. Our normal podcast episodes sound and feel very different from this one. We're typically less formal. There's a lot of loud banter back and forth and laughing, a lot of comedy and joking, and we record in front of each other. In this case, our guests are professional writers and were recorded individually. And now, without any further delays, here's our first guest, Pete Buttigieg. Chaston's life and mine had become so fully intertwined that I was completely unprepared for the jolt of a winter afternoon text, which led to seven minutes in which I doubted I'd see him again. He was abroad, getting an early start on a winter vacation in which I was to catch up to him a couple days later. I was working when the unreal seeming text message lit up my phone. Problem on plane, dash, lots of commotion, dash, don't know what's going on. Captain said making landing for, quote, secret reason, end quote. Love you, love you, love you. I texted, paced, and waited, for seven inordinately long minutes until another text came. He had landed, he wasn't sure where. It turned out to be Bucharest. There had been a bomb scare on board. He was fine, but shaken. Passengers had been crying, shouting, and a few were running in the aisles even as it landed. When I finally caught up to him in Berlin, he asked me to walk with him to the Brandenburg Gate. Lit splendidly in the cold night, it was one of those landmarks that looks exactly the way it is supposed to. It was also, Chaston explained, a place he came to while he was figuring himself out as a teenage exchange student, watching the people come and go and fitting himself into a bigger world. He described the terror as the plane made its steep and sudden descent. All I could think about was how unfair it was that I would lose the chance to have a life with you, he told me, and reached into his bag. I'm not going to get on one knee, but now I was afraid again for a different reason. I really did love him and no other attraction or relationship had compared to the feeling of wholeness I had with Chaston. But it had been less than two years, and I still felt new at this. Our first date wasn't just our first date. It came at the beginning of my dating life altogether. Now, it seemed, my boyfriend was proposing, and I wasn't sure what to say. What he said next made it clear he knew me better than anyone. He opened the box. I know you're not ready for marriage, but I want you to know how I feel. So instead of giving you a ring, I'm giving you time. In the box was a watch. A year later, it was my turn to fumble for a box, 
and now it was definitely a ring. We were on another New Year vacation. The days between Christmas and New Year's are the nearest it gets to a quiet time in the mayor's office. And I had lured him to gate B5 at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, the spot where he said he was killing time between herds of exchange students when he first noticed my profile on his phone and began chatting with me. I had worked out what kind of ring he wanted, a platinum band with a little square diamond in the middle, and made sure his parents and mine knew about my plans. All that remained was to ask him. This won't sound romantic to those who don't know us, but I had selected the space behind the gate agent's desk, a three-foot wide zone against the window where you have something resembling privacy while looking out on the tarmac. In a way, O'Hare had brought us together. Plus, the halfway secluded space in the midst of the busy concourse was symbolic for how our life together would be. I can't promise you an easy life or a simple one, I said. And sometimes privacy for us will be like this, stealing away a quiet moment even with people all around us. It won't always be elegant, but I promise it will always be an adventure. And I promise to love you forever. I went ahead and got on one knee. Through the tears, he said yes. The day before the wedding, Terry Glesman sized up the parking lot outside the enormous building known as Langlab. This was not exactly your traditional wedding reception venue, a disused former furniture factory slowly being turned into a mixed-use arts and entrepreneurial space, complete with a chocolate maker at one end, a print shop in the basement, and on the far side, a makeshift office for student interns working on soil samples for water quality projects. It was quirky, but Langlab had ample space, a stage, and a bar. The price was right, and it perfectly captured the things we love most about South Bend, creativity, art, and transformation. We arranged for local art to be displayed in one room inside, while a band, and later DJ, played in another. Dinner would be served outside, where guests could eat it in a tent or bring their tacos and sliders into the building. Sweating in the morning heat as he assessed the scene, Terry scanned the ground and concluded that the parking lot was not sufficiently level. So, of course, he decided to fix it. He somehow procured a wheelbarrow and a load of gravel, press-ganged a couple relatives into helping, and spent that Friday personally leveling it so it would be ready by the time of our reception, while Sherry hauled in boxes of wine from Traverse City and wrapped gifts for members of the wedding party. Saturday afternoon, it was even hotter outside, but cool inside the Cathedral of St. James. Chaston and I sat holding hands as friends gave readings, from poetry selections to the ending of the Obergefell versus Hodges decision that, just three years earlier, had made this wedding legally possible to begin with. Father Brian Grants, my pastor since I had moved home a decade ago, gave a moving sermon, assuring us that we were made for one another by God, and reminding us to look for love in the spaces between the divine and the mundane. At the altar, my voice dropped by an octave as I fought to get the words of the vow out before my emotions could stop me. Then came the customary yet unreal sequence, the rings, the kiss, the applause and cheer of our friends and family, the bishop's blessing, and the summing up by the deacon as the service came to a close, going, life is short, and we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel with us. So be quick to love, make haste to be kind, and go in peace to follow the good road of blessing. Like most newlyweds, I remember the reception itself mostly as a blur. There is the face of my mother, the happiest I have ever seen her, dancing with me to the Beatles' version of Till There Was You. There is Chaston, savoring a victory after besting me in a lopsided contest of skee-ball on a pair of machines we had rented for the occasion. There are our friends, singing in unison on the dance floor, seamlessly picking up for Bon Jovi as living on a prayer is interrupted by a short power outage triggered by the taco truck outside. And there is the note from Sherry that I had found in my room while getting ready, rolled up in a best son-in-law-ever coffee mug, welcoming me to the family and ending, 
Take care of my baby. He may be on a permanent loan to you, but he will always be mine. Our very own Greg Mania is the next guest. Greg is an incredibly talented and funny comedian and writer, recipient of many awards for screenplays, a freelance author for Paper, Out, Vanity Fair, and many others, and is the author of his upcoming debut book, Born to be Public, coming in April 2020 with Clash Books. The reason I say our very own is Greg also teaches workshops on our platform, Personal Disclosures. These workshops are available for free, but only to our members. Anyone, anywhere, at any level, or writing ability or interest can become a member. We're offering free trials and memberships, no credit cards needed, on our website right now. So check it out at personaldisclosures.com. And now here's Greg. This piece is entitled, My Excruciating History of Sexual Awkwardness and How I'm Overcoming It. My relationship with sex, like most of my relationships with men and the gym, is complicated. Luckily, I now have an understanding and patient boyfriend, but before him, I haven't had sex in, mm, redacted. I won't divulge the exact duration, but I can tell you that it equates to approximately 38.9 years in gay years. My bout of unintentional chastity started after my last relationship. It was an extremely toxic relationship that resulted in my ex-boyfriend going to rehab and me going to therapy. Need I say more? Exactly. I guess my celibacy wasn't purely unintentional, for the most part, considering I avoided sex like I avoided eye contact with the person who just audibly voided their bowels in the bathroom stall next to me. I was dealing with some serious trust and intimacy issues that made getting close to someone again, especially intimately, extremely difficult for me. Also, I never went through a slutty phase in college because I was busy handling my newly diagnosed anxiety disorder, which usually meant that I was equally balancing my time between having a panic attack and dreading my next one. So my lack of experience in the bedroom only added another nail in the coffin that would soon accompany my sex life six feet under, and rendered me crippled with a slew of sexual insecurities. I've had boyfriends in college, and my level of intimacy with them was totally almost unburdened by my anxiety, and I was able to let my guard down and enjoy myself in the bedroom because I was consistently getting laid, so sex really didn't feel foreign to me at the time. And between boyfriends, I've only hooked up with a handful of men, and five times out of five, those hookups were facilitated by tequila and desperation. But then came said toxic relationship that demolished any ability I had to enjoy the naked tango without breathing into a brown paper bag. Even after working through a majority of my trust issues, my sexual insecurity started to add up after being out of sexual commission for so long, and made getting back into the dating game even more insufferable than it already is, especially in a place like New York City where dating is notoriously a pain in the ass. They prevented me from meeting new people and have taken a toll on my sex drive. I was terrified of meeting someone and then having to explain to them why I'm half hiding behind their oriental room divider while they sit there naked and ready to get down to business. I wanted to be spontaneous and have adventurous sex, like, say, doing it in a used car dealership after dark, but I couldn't. I knew that even if I tried, I would panic and stop, drop, and roll away from any situation. I remember back in December that I was making out with this guy outside of his apartment building. We went out on a date, and we found our hands wandering downtown in this little crevice near the entrance of his building. I remember thinking, I can totally do it right now. Sexual insecurities be damned. This was the first time that I actually felt like I could go all the way without wanting to run in the opposite direction. And then he was all like, BTW, I have a boyfriend and we're about to be engaged. And then I was all like, mm, bye. Cut to a few months later. I'm dating someone who has soon become my current boyfriend. He's cute, sweet, hilarious, 
and is willing to spend $9 on a piece of cheesecake for me. He's got it all. But most importantly, I was able to open up to him. I don't know why I haven't been able to talk about this openly, until this essay that is, considering the filter that was supposed to come with my mouth apparently got left behind in my mother's uterus. Listen, I'm shameless. I'll tell the person I'm riding the elevator with that I'm uncircumcised. But for some reason, my involuntary celibacy made me ashamed, which is weird for someone who doesn't even have a lot of shame to begin with. But as fate or luck or whatever may have it, I have someone in my life who understands me, makes me feel again, and raises me up, Josh Groban. Okay, that last part was an homage to Nicki Minaj, but I digress. What I'm saying is, like taking a D up my B again, I'm taking baby steps to stop feeling inadequate about my sexual inexperience and letting it affect my life. In every aspect, love, social, and sex. And just go ahead at my own pace and stop feeling bad about it. Oh, and for any other unintentional celibates out there, just when you think you've added enough lube, add more. And I'm speaking from experience. Next up is also a Personal Disclosures member and workshop facilitator, Samantha Mann. Samantha just published an essay collection called Putting Out, with Read Furiously Publishing. Samantha writes personal and nonfiction essays covering LGBTQ life, mental health, and feminism. Her work can also be found in Bus Magazine's digital platform, Bustle, Washington Post Magazine, and in various other publications. The first time I tried to kiss my wife, she shot me down. It was late and we lounged in my bed, drunk on the edge of sleep, but still awake laughing. Sensations of lust, love, and need washed over me as I thoughtlessly leaned over to kiss her. Please don't kiss me, she said quietly. The words punched me in the throat and reddened me with embarrassment. In the protection of the dark room, I played the devastating incident coolly and didn't let her see that I was literally dying of embarrassment. I wanted to jump out of my window, crawl under our crawl space, and never be seen of or heard from again. Knowing she couldn't see the heat radiating off of my face brought a minuscule amount of comfort and allowed me to rally up a faux disinterest. You're such a prude, I said, shoving her shoulder with a weird laugh snort as if we were two bros. Before the sun reemerged to start its day, Alyssa had crept out of my bed and gone back to her apartment. It was the weekend, which normally meant the two of us would wake up together late, side by side, hungover, but happy. I felt horrified, and my inner dialogue was reeling with disgust at myself. How could I have done something so horrifying? I no longer wanted meaningless guys and hookups. I only wanted her, and I hated myself for it. Two years later, our relationship started feeling even more convoluted. Her bed was the only place I wanted to be. It reached an apex where I would have sex with a guy, kick him out, and then arrive at her house 30 minutes later just to fall asleep. This routine was expected. Where are you? She would text me if I hadn't made it to her house by 2 a.m. The sex I was having began feeling intolerable. I hated their masculine smells and how rough their skin felt against me. A new habit formed where I would shower manically seconds after they left and immediately throw my sheets in the wash. I needed to wash the experience off of my things and myself. Their testosterone lingered everywhere and at times might have been imagined, proved difficult to get rid of. No amount of scrubbing could wash her out of my system. I was going insane. During the first semester back of my senior year, my drinking and rage reached another new apex. 
The summer of forcing myself to have feelings for any male had proven unsuccessful. Until this point, I had never failed at anything I had set out to accomplish. I was a sloppy drunk and loathing myself. On nights that she didn't stop me from sleeping with guys, I was furious at her and myself. While I couldn't stomach this self-destructive merry-go-ride any longer, I couldn't figure out a way to get off of it. Many nights ended with me yelling at her about nothing other than a deep internal need to make chaos and noise. I was nasty and my attempts to make her feel awful worked. I drank because I hated that I wanted her. I drank to try to kill my feelings for her or at least shove them down to a place where I couldn't feel them. But this never worked. I was afraid if I didn't yell, I'd break down and tell her everything. The yelling, while unfair, felt refreshing. I was mad about so many things. Suddenly, anything more than kissing with guys started to make me feel physically ill. But I kept at it in the hope something would change. Alyssa's true feelings for me became harder for her to repress. She became a calculated cockblock, taking my phone when she knew a guy was texting me, and luring me to her apartment with the promise of late night pizza. I feigned annoyance, but secretly savored her obvious intentions. At our third Halloween party together, this time dressed up as characters for Mario Kart, we split a fifth of vodka and flirted shamelessly. A switch had flipped and we finally kissed. The kissing went on for months. It was every cliche I had ever heard come to realization. The frustration of not being able to crawl into each other's skin was maddening. Close was never enough. The night before winter break, only the two of us occupied the sorority house. Everyone had left for vacation while we generated bogus excuses to our families to stay on campus for one more night. I remember eating clementines in her kitchen at 3 a.m., starved from all the kissing. The sweet floral scents lingered. My feet felt cold against the vinyl floor and a draft pushed through the back door. Alyssa and I stood staring and laughing at one another, feeling high off the pheromones. I had never kissed someone I had real feelings for, and suddenly the whole world seemed brighter and louder than I remembered. No one had cleaned a dish in months, and the sink piled up with 100 meals worth of crusty cutlery. The countertops were sticky from spilt liquor. The floor stuck too. The garbage needed to be taken out, and I had never been happier. And that was What's Love Got To Do With It. We have other surprises and guest stars in store, and please check out our regular programming with our regular cast. The stories in this episode were written by writing pros who have been published, but we usually feature everyday people taking a comedic approach to their everyday problems. We believe everyone is funny, smart, and interesting on paper, and we have the platform and the tools to give everyone a voice and get anyone started on leaving behind their legacy. Check out more on our website, personaldisclosures.com, and on our Instagram at personal.disclosures. This episode was produced by Julie Bashkin and Alana Kipp and edited by Katie Harmer. Email us for more information to share your story or just to let us know a piece of your mind at tellus at personaldisclosures.com. <laughs>